This is Joe Loudguy tuning in to another episode of Sociable Socialism. Thank you. And uh, this is April 28th at 10.55 p.m. Uh, I am recording this uh, at my usual mic, so uh, the sound quality should be just fine. Uh, Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, And today I'm going to be going over updates on the Tara Reid story, uh, some minor information, I guess, tangential to that, uh, being the, t- the uh, Alyssa Milano uh, tweets from earlier today. Uh, we're going to go over uh, the general consensus of the progressive movement now that uh, Bernie is no longer in the race, and we're just going to uh, cover an article uh, that I found interesting. Uh, so uh, buckle up and stay tuned. All right, and it is a cold April evening. Uh, Thank you all for tuning in, uh, and I appreciate any of my listeners who have borne with me, bared with me, uh, during this uh, post-Bernie depression that I've been in. Uh, I really do appreciate the fact that I can look at this uh, listens per week. And as much as it's like cut in half since January and February, the fact that it still has a half that consistently tunes in, I just want to say to those of you that are listening, I'm deeply appreciative. Thank you. Uh, It has been very difficult for me to find my rage again, uh, because that was one of my key motivators in, in my activism and my volunteering And in recording this podcast was a desire to see change in the system. And I really thought that we were going to see it with Bernie 2020. Anybody who's listened to the show for a long time knew that I was uh, very active in the campaign and that I said it was the most likely outcome based on my projections. And at the time, my projections made sense. But I failed to calculate uh, the establishment uniting behind Joe Biden and knocking out all their other competitors. I thought their narcissism would get in the way, and clearly it did not. So it was a big disappointment for me. And I tuned out of politics, basically, for like the last month, because a lot of it has been just coronavirus reactions and, you know, Donald Trump telling people to inject bleach into their skin, which is, you know... From a layman's perspective, amusing on some days, horrifying on others. You know, I I don't necessarily know what can be done about it at this point. He's been giving awful tweets his entire time in office. It's one of the reasons why getting rid of him was such a priority for so many people. And why, even though Joe Biden should be disqualified, potentially he could still win. I don't know. I I don't think it is very likely. I think that what I I actually think is that if it happens, there are a million other candidates you could have run that it would have been more likely to happen with. That's what I will say. A. B, if he picks Hillary Clinton as his running mate, if Joe Biden picks Hillary Clinton as his VP, he is guaranteeing his loss because she's the one person who proved that she could lose to Donald Trump you're basically giving him his ideal opponents and you're doing it out of narcissism. There would be no other reason to do it than because of narcissism. And 
I, I sincerely hope that's not the way we're going to go with it. Uh, I know Hillary has wanted to be president for a long time and being given power in a de facto way with Joe Biden at the head of the ticket might be as close as she can get. Maybe that's what she's thinking. Maybe Joe Biden dies. She takes over. That might be the the thought process. I personally think Stacey Abrams is more likely to get the VP nod because I have to believe there's at least somebody like Barack Obama. It's a lot of things, but stupid. I don't think is one of them. There has to be at least somebody behind the scenes that understands what a colossally stupid idea that is. But I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm consistently disappointed by politicians, so I don't know. Maybe the craziest things people say on Twitter are correct and that this is a move for Hillary to get the VP nod. I mean, he did say he would pick a woman. She is a woman. But again, I, I think that's the kind of move you do if you want to lose. I think that Stacey Abrams, as embarrassing as it is that she recently said her favorite book is Fountainhead. I mean, <laughs> come on, man. Are you kidding me? What is this? Like Econ 103 with Thomas Ristisi? What the fuck is wrong with you? You got this libertarian mumbo jumbo is your favorite book. I mean, she's been completely infected by Center for American Progress cap brain rot. About Let me say that about Stacey Abrams. Like that is, it is deeply depressing. Someone that appeared to be so progressive losing due to election fraud in my mind. Uh, in Georgia, the race for the governorship, and then pretty much just selling out to cap at maximum capacity. As much as she could sell out to the Center for American Progress, she did. And that that's depressing. You know, that's another example of one of the things that used to get me angry, but once all the hope ran out, now it just sort of like tires me out. And of course, in the middle of all this, we have Kim Jong-un dying uh, or going into like a coma. It's a little unclear, you know, um, North Korea is not exactly forthcoming with his condition. It's just fascinating. It's a fascinating time in the news. I'm glad I got back into it just so I can talk about this stuff. Um, it is, to me, clear from a moral perspective that Donald Trump losing is a good thing. Whatever else happens along the way to get there, Donald Trump losing is a good thing. It will help millions of people. However, Biden is not someone that I think can win it. I think that he has done nothing to reach out to the progressive left. I think this super PAC that Jeff Weaver has set up to try to uh, shepherd uh, progressives over to the Biden coalition, I think that's doomed to fail. I think that it is discounting the fact that it didn't work with T Hillary Clinton in 2016. I don't see how it could work now. I don't see how shaming people, as I'm seeing a lot of, is going to be sufficient if it wasn't last time. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Trump hatred is so high that voter turnout will make the difference. But I think Biden's the kind of guy you run if you don't particularly care because he has got no strengths, only weaknesses. Now, uh, as to the Alyssa Milano uh drama, I guess we'll call it, is she did a tweet earlier today, uh, and she had been skeptical of Tara Reid's story, and that to me is you not believing the survivors, which if you know Alyssa Milano, she's very tied to the origin of the Me Too movement, which, you know, she was one of the people that was like, always believe the women, but she didn't believe Tara Reid and actually, you know, said at one point that she believed Tara Reid was part of a smear campaign. Uh, the exact tweet was right. 
this is clearly a smear campaign and Warren not endorsing Bernie when their policies line up to me means she was telling the truth about what he said. So basically, Alyssa Milano was saying that A, Bernie did say a woman couldn't win and B, Tara Reid made up her allegation that Joe Biden assaulted her. Now, those of you who are fans of the show will remember because I played the recording how vivid her recollection was. Uh, That, to me, did not sound like something that was made up. It sounded horrifying and traumatic. And I I don't understand how any human being with empathy could feel that way. But that just shows you that Alyssa Milano really doesn't have empathy. She's just, you know, a corporate suit. Uh, She came out today and said, I'm aware of the new developments in Tara Reid's accusation against Joe Biden. I want Tara, like every other survivor, to have the space to be heard and seen without being used as father uh, fodder. I hear and see you, Tara. Now, this got ratioed epically. Like, it got 15,000 likes but 20,000 comments because she had claimed just a few weeks ago that being a Bernie supporter was discounting of the rape because he she supported Bernie. Therefore, it was partisan and a made-up story to attack Joe Biden because Alyssa Milano hates jo- Bernie Sanders because she doesn't want her taxes to go up. She, she's a part of that corporate neoliberal establishment. And I think that a lot of people already knew this, but it's nice to have it on the record to basically show it that Alyssa Milano was this willing to abandon any form of principles that she claimed to have. Uh, so now that uh, Tara Reid's accusations are finally getting media traction, I mean, I have to believe that coincides with Bernie jump dropping out of the race is that finally the media feels they can cover it. You know, uh, other organizations that helped with the Me Too movement like Time's Up are finally, you know, listening to Tara Reid's accusations because, again, the entire the power establishment refused to let their apparatchiks, their, you know, feel good projects these, you know, supposedly nonprofit groups that help the public, they refuse to let those groups sabotage their best interests. You know, they that they can go after anyone is frankly astonishing because the neoliberals protect their own uh, by and large. Now, the article I wanted to read is uh, from Common Dreams. Uh, so we'll get to that later. Uh, for right now, uh, as a review of the Tara Reid story, uh, I have uh Something here from uh, Business Insider. Uh, Just give me one moment to pull that up. It's giving me an ad block message. All right. So I actually used uh, Microsoft Edge to pull it up. (laughs) Ha ha. Didn't have to turn off my ad blocker. Uh, In March, when a former aide to Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden, uh, just so you know, again, this is from Business Insider. Uh, Rich McHugh wrote this. And the name of the article is a former neighbor of Joe Biden's accuser, Tara Reid, has come forward to corroborate her sexual assault account. Uh, So, uh, and this article uh, was written yesterday on the 27th. Uh, So in March, when a former Democratic or former aide to Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden accused the candidate of sexually assaulting her in 1993, two people came forward to say that the woman, Tara Reid, had told them of the incident shortly after it allegedly occurred. Her brother, Colin Moulton, and a friend who asked to remain anonymous for fear of retribution. Now, again, people wonder why women don't come forward. You have people like Elizabeth Milano basically saying that, let me guess, Bernie supporter, and that discounts the entire, that's it. Yeah, because you're a Bernie supporter, you making an accusation against Joe Biden clearly must be a lie. Now, that's insane to me. Uh, Right there, someone who wants to remain anonymous for fear of retribution. 
because that's how powerful these people are. They are literally the the power brokers of our society. You know, the the people who decide who's going to be president. And when you try to hold them accountable, they fight back and they will ruin your life. It's not like Tara Reid has benefited from this story getting out there. You know, she has had her name dragged through the mud. She's been labeled a liar, a part of some smear campaign. It, it's insane. So back to the article. Now, two more sources have come forward to corroborate certain details about Reed's claims. One of them, a former neighbor of Reed's, has told Insider for the first time on the record that Reed disclosed details about the alleged assault to her in the mid-90s. Now, this happened, and I know it did because I remember talking about it. That's Linda LaCase, who lived next door to Reed in the mid-90s. The other source, Lorraine Sanchez, who worked with Reed in the office of a California state senator in the mid-90s, told Insider that she recalls Reed complaining at the time that her former boss in Washington, D.C. had sexually harassed her and that she had been fired after raising concerns. In interviews with Insider, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and politics podcaster Katie Halper, who broke the story of the assault allegations, Reed has said that in the spring or summer of 1993, she was told to meet Biden in a semi-private corridor to deliver a duffel bag there. She said Biden pushed her up against a wall, reached under her skirt and penetrated her with his fingers. Again, those of you who have listened to the show, you remember that audio of her describing the incident. I have, It was one of the most chilling things I've ever heard. It was horrifying. When she resisted his advances, Reed said, by, uh, Reed said Biden expressed annoyance and said, oh man, I heard you like me. Then she said he pointed a finger at her face and said, you're nothing to me. After that, she said he took her by the shoulder and said, you're okay, you're fine, before walking away. Before the alleged assault, Reed said she had already complained to her superiors in Biden's office that the way Biden looked at her and touched her made her uncomfortable. She got no response, she said, and after the alleged assault, was abruptly relieved of her duties uh, managing interns. She said... She later filed a complaint about her treatment, but not about the assault allegation with a Senate Human Resources Office. Mistake. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that she shouldn't try to get justice or try to have the complaints dealt with, but Human Resources, to me, is one of the worst departments you can ever go to for any kind of reprieve. They are like designed to protect the people that hire them, which are the people above them. It's an insane conflict of interest that we tolerate Human Resource Departments. Anyway... The Biden camp has denied Reed's allegations. Women have a right to tell their story, and reporters have an obligation to vigorously vet those claims, Kate Bedingfield, Biden's communications director, said in a statement earlier this month. We encourage them to do so because these accusations are false. Asked to comment specifically on the case and Sanchez's comments, Bedingfield referred insider to her previous statement. She did not respond to a request to interview Biden about Reed's accusations. Insiders sought access to Biden's senatorial papers, which are housed at the University of Delaware, to search for records that may shed light on Reed's claims. The university denied the request, saying Biden's papers, quote, will remain closed to the public until two years after Mr. Biden retires from public life. Holy shit. I didn't even know that. The University of Delaware refuses to let these papers come forward until Mr. Biden retires from two years after he retires? That's insane. Are you kidding me? This is this is this matters now. If he becomes president, he could be president for eight years. This is important now. You're gonna keep it until two years after he's been president. Like let's assume he gets the full eight years. Ten years. Ten years? You're insane. He'll be dead by then. Oh my god. I don't even mean to say that to be mean. I'm just like, that's unbelievable. And again, what? If he retires because he loses, great. 
I'm glad that those papers remain closed. That was really helpful. You know, it would have been nice to know that during the election. Hooray. Unbelievable. LeCay told Insider that in 1995 or 96, Reed told her she had been assaulted by Biden. I remember her saying here uh, was this person that she was working for and she idolized him, which lines up with the interview uh, that we heard uh, with Katie Halper. Uh, LeCay said, and he kind of put her up against a wall and he put his hands up her skirt and put his fingers inside her. She felt like she was assaulted and she really didn't feel there was anything she could do. LaCay said that she remembers Reed getting emotional as she told the story. She was crying, she said. She was upset. And the more she talked about it, the more she started crying. I remember saying that she needed to file a police report. LaCay said she does not recall whether Reed supplied any other details, like the location of the alleged assault or anything Biden may have said. I don't remember all the details, LaCay said. I remember the skirt. I remember the fingers. I remember she was devastated. LaCay is the first person to independently corroborate in detail and on the record that Reed had told others about her assault allegations contemporaneously. Reed's brother, Colin Moulton, previously told Insider that he recalled his sister saying that Biden had his hand under her clothes at some point. In a series of interviews with Insider over the past week, LaCay said she decided to speak up now at a time when Reed's story is under intense scrutiny in the media and facing denials from the Biden campaign because she believed Reed's account when she first heard it. I have to support her just because that's what's happened, LaCay said. We need to stand up and tell the truth. And the article goes on to take the words right out of my mouth that says uh, it takes a lot of guts to do what she's doing, you know, in regards to Linda LaCay's coming forward. So LaCase, who's 60 now, is a retired former medical staff coordinator and emergency room clerk for San Luis Obispo General Hospital, OBI-SPO. She lived next door to Reed in 1995 and 1996 in an apartment complex near the beach in Morro Bay, California, a seaside community between Santa Barbara and Monterey. She told Insider that she and Reed shared a bond because they were both mothers and their young daughters swam together in the apartment complex indoor pool. LaCase said she would sometimes sit on her front stoop to smoke cigarettes after putting her daughter to bed and that Reed would occasionally join her. It was during one of these evening conversations she said that Reed told her about the alleged assault. We were talking about violent stories, LaCase said, because I had a violent situation. We just started talking about things and she told me about the senator that she had worked for and he put his hand up her skirt. LaCase acknowledged that coming forward to support an allegation against the Democratic presidential nominee, quote, may have repercussions for me. Yeah, that's saying it, putting it mildly, uh, end quote. Uh, But she said she has no political axe to grind and intends to vote for Biden. I personally am a Democrat, a very strong Democrat, she said, and I am for Biden regardless, but still I have to come out and say this. Insider is verified through publicly available records that Reed and LaCase were neighbors at a Morro Bay apartment complex in 1995. A review of LaCay's social media presence shows a long history of anti-Trump sentiments. She has written approvingly of both Biden and his Democratic rival Bernie Sanders on Twitter. I don't see how you can write approvingly of both, but regardless. In March, she said she shared a link on Facebook to a story detailing Reed's allegations with the message, This is my good friend Tara Reed, who was assaulted by Joe Biden in 1993. LaCay told Insider that she and Reed fell out of touch after Reed's or after Reed moved out of their apartment complex in the late 90s, but the two reconnected in 2016, she said, when Reed reached out to her on Facebook. In April 2019, Reed told a Nevada City, California newspaper that Biden had inappropriately touched her and made her uncomfortable, though she did not accuse him of assaulting her. It was after that story, LaCay said, that she and Reed first revisited the conversation they'd had about Biden in the mid-90s. 
Quote, she mentioned that she had come forward, LaKay said. And so I said, oh my gosh, yeah, I do remember that. Uh, then, late last month, in a podcast interview with Halper, Reed made her full accusation known that Biden had attacked her in a corridor, shoved his hand up her skirt, and, digital, and digitally penetrated her. Oh, with your digits. Uh, duh, of course. Uh, with your fingers. That makes sense. Uh, after seeing how political operatives and news organizations responded to the claim, the Biden camp denied it outright, and critics score, scoured Reed's social media accounts for evidence of a purported affinity for Russian President Vladimir Putin. LeCay said she decided to come forward. She didn't ask me to, LeCay said. I volunteered to do that just recently. If this was me, I would want somebody to stand up for me. It takes a lot of guts to do what she's doing. Wow. Courage. Reed told a former colleague that she had been fired for voicing concerns. Yet another source reached by Business Insider corroborates some of Reed's claims about her time working for Biden. After she left Washington, D.C., Reed worked for California State Senator Jack O'Connell. Lorraine Sanchez, a former legislative staffer in O'Connell's office, mentored Reed and worked alongside her from 1994 through 96. Sanchez told Insider that Reed complained at the time about being mistreated by her former employer. Receipt, uh, Reed said she had been sexually harassed by her former boss while she was in D.C., Sanchez said. And as a result of her voicing her concerns to her superiors, she was let go and fired. Sanchez said she does not recall if Reed offered details about the sort of harassment she allegedly suffered or if she named Biden. What I do remember, Sanchez said, is reassur uh, reassuring her that nothing like that would ever happen to her here in our office, that she was in a safe place, free from any sexual harassment. Reed said she never experienced harassment from any other employer she had during her time in Washington and that the employer Sanchez recalls her complaining about was Biden. Sanchez praised Reed for speaking out. It takes great courage and strength to come forward. Sanchez said in a statement to Insider, it's much easier to keep silent. However, I do understand the duty we have as women to share our story, regardless of who the perpetrator may be. Reed went on to work in the domestic violence unit for the King County prosecutor in Seattle, and she received her law degree from Seattle University School of Law in 2004. She later served as a legal service director for the Sonohomish County Center for Battered Women. Uh, an anonymous 1993 call to Larry King Live. Yeah, the, and so this is moving on to last week. Uh, so last week, video emerged of an unnamed woman that Reed says is her mother calling into a 1993 broadcast of CNN's Larry King Live, devoted to the culture of Washington, D.C. The woman claimed that her daughter had run into unspecified problems with a U.S. senator. I'm wondering what a staffer would do besides go to the press in Washington, the caller said. My daughter has just left there after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all, and the only thing she could have done was to go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Reed had previously told The Intercept's Ryan Grimm that her mother, who died in, in 2016, had made such a call but couldn't recall the date. When Grimm mentioned it on a podcast, Twitter users dug up the transcript and video. Uh, Reed, who has listened to this newly unearthed phone call, told Insider that it was indeed her mother's voice speaking to King. It was almost a spiritual experience because my mom loved me so much and supported me, Reed said choking back tears. I get emotional even now, and I gave her such a hard time about calling Larry King's show that I feel really bad that I couldn't say to her now, thank you so much, and give her a hug. And I think the most powerful part for me was just how she crossed space and time to help me. Jesus. Wow, that is... Mm. Okay. Uh, moving forward. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, this is powerful stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, wow. 
so in addition to the denial from Biden's camp, other former Senate staffers have emerged to cast doubt on Reid's accusations. Marianne Baker, who was Biden's executive assistant for almost two decades, including in 1993, issued a statement saying she never witnessed or heard of any inappropriate conduct. I have absolutely no knowledge or memory of Ms. Reid accounting of events, which would have left a searing impression on me as a woman, or as a woman professional and as a manager. I'm sure you didn't. That's why you had the job. That's the entire reason you got the managerial uh, job. Like, it, this is insane. I hate this idea that, oh, well, let's go to who her superior at the time was and see what they think. It's an accusation against the power structures of the superiors. It's an accusation against them. They're the last people that are going to report on it accurately. Oi. Insider has reached out to other staffers who worked in Biden's office during the time Reed worked there. Melissa Lefko, at the time a staff assistant, said she doesn't remember Reed at all and that she would have been aware of any accusations of assault or harassment at the time. Had there been anything, I would have heard about it, she said. Yeah, okay. An intern who worked under Reed and who asked to remain anonymous said she does not recall Reed discussing any allegations of assault or harassment, but she does corroborate Reed's claim that she was abruptly relieved of her duties as intern supervisor in April, 20, in April 1993, a move that her former intern found odd at the time. A police investigation has been moved to inactive status. Earlier this month, Reed filed a report with the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department memorializing her allegations about the 1993 in incident. Even though the statute of limitations rendered a full investigation highly unlikely, she took the step, she told Insider at the time, for safety reasons because she had faced online harassment. Alyssa Milano is one of the parties thankful for that one. Uh, quote, I also wanted to make it clear that I would be willing to go under oath or cooperate with any law enforcement regarding it because it did happen, she said, even if it was 26 years ago. On April 20th, a police spokesperson told Insider that there was an active investigation into Reed's complaint, but in a statement on Saturday, the department said the case had been moved to an inactive status. Reed said she expected that outcome and said she is not backing down. I'd like to be heard in a fair and objective way, she said, and I'd also like to hear Joe Biden's response, which has not happened. My hope is that the conversation will move forward and we will examine how I was treated when I came forward and really look at the fact that like domestic violence, sexual assault and sexual harassment is not a partisan issue. It's an equal opportunity offender. It is absolutely true. This is incredibly courageous what Tara Reid has done. I heard that audio and I walked away saying Biden's a monster like it couldn't be him. This man needs to go to prison. He can't be the Democratic nominee. And as I stated at the beginning of this episode, you know, I... I I've covered it extensively, my own personal conflicts with it. I've covered extensively. And I don't know which is the bigger sin. I don't know if by not voting for Biden, I am hurting millions of people that are in captivity right now by the Trump administration, or I'm a hypocrite and a sellout of my own ideology, which is just espousing for justice, like just justice for people. Like Tara Reid deserves justice for what Joe Biden did to her. And even to this day, that assault that, that he assaulted her is still negatively impacting her life. Like she has to come forward about it and get her name dragged through the mud, get attacked savagely by these neoliberal hack warmongering sellouts. And what her, what's her reward for it? What kind of what kind of reward is there for someone like this? Like that you would be, if you succeed in, in getting Biden held accountable, 
you think it's, you're going to be praised or thanked? No, people will blame you. They'll blame you for any, like, again, if Biden doesn't win this election, they'll blame you. Like, that's, that's her reward for her sacrifice and for her courage. So this is a conflicting situation to be in. As a personal voter who can only do so much with one vote, I personally am still undecided. You know, I go back and forth. I say I can't vote for Joe Biden. He's a disgusting monster, and I believe that. But on the other hand, you know, Trump is actively working to turn us into a apartheid state. And in a lot of ways, we already are, but he's expanding it. And Joe Biden maybe would not. And that might save, like, again, if I could even put in, like, one life, I once said, is enough of a difference to motivate me because my own personal pride doesn't mean anything. So that, that fact comes back to haunt me now and tell me that you said your personal pride, you know, wasn't enough to stop you from doing the right thing. Is that true? And it isn't about my pride in this situation. You know, I mean, I, I guess it feels like it, but it, it really is like a moral conflict. I, I really don't know which is worse. A lot of people are saying we need to break ranks with the Democrats once for all or we're never going to win. The best suggestion I saw has been in the form of this Amazon uh, Walmart uh, general strike, which I'm loving and I deeply support. I'm going to go into details about that if you haven't heard about it. But to me, I, I guess I'm walking away with the conviction that electoralism isn't all it was cracked up to be. I thought that electoralism was going to be our method of change because it looked like we were going to be able to finally hijack the system from them. And then the system turned around and just basically shut us out. So now that that's now that it's concluded, uh, I think it is time for us to consider new strategies. You know, I, I don't think that anything will change. Like people are talking about, you know, running third party. I'm not convinced that'll work. There have been 30 third party efforts going for the last 40 years. and They haven't worked. The green party is not taken off. Uh, and that is because despite the fact that the green party has a better platform than the Democrats, uh, the Democrats are just better at saying, look, we're the only ones who are realistically going to win. And you got to pick the best option of people who can realistically win. That's really what electoralism comes down to. You know, it's the least worst option. It's terrible incentives, but that's the 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 way it breaks out. Uh, Donald Trump is frankly more coherent than Joe Biden. So on some levels, like I could almost see people going like, "Well, who is the least worst option between these two choices?" Like it's that bad. Like it really is. He's the worst person you could possibly put forward in this situation. So I don't, I don't hold anyone accountable. I, I feel conflicted. I expect most people are conflicted. I don't hold anyone accountable for not knowing what, exactly how they're going to vote in November. Uh, but I don't think that the third party method is likely to work. Uh, we will see where the polling shows uh, the Green Party is sometime by September. I don't expect it'll be very significant. People are talking about getting 7% of the vote. I think that is very optimistic. But, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be surprised. Uh, besides that, I don't see what we do to win the presidency. I don't see what we do to win power in the United States because it seems to me that they'll just shut us out of either party. No matter what change we try to elicit, they're determined not to let us have a say in politics because it would upset the apple cart. So to deal with that, 
I think the striking is the way to go. So getting into current events. So this is coming to us from uh, Daniel Medina from The Intercept. Uh, As Amazon, Walmart, and others profit amid coronavirus crisis, their essential workers plan an unprecedented strike. Uh, So an unprecedented coalition of workers from some of America's largest corporations will strike on Friday. Uh, Workers from Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods, Walmart, Target, and FedEx are slated to walk out on work, citing what they say is their employers' record profits at the expense of workers' health and safety during the coronavirus pandemic. The employees will call out sick or walk off the job during their lunch break, according to a press release set to be published by organizers on Wednesday. In some locations, rank-and-file union members will join workers outside their warehouses and storefronts to support the demonstrations. We are acting in conjunction with workers at Amazon, Target, Instacart, and other companies for International Workers Day to show solidarity with other essential workers in our struggle for better protections and benefits in the pandemic, said Daniel Stein. Brooke, a Whole Foods employee and strike organizer. The labor action comes as workers and organizers say Amazon in particular has not been forthcoming about the number of COVID-19 cases at its more than 175 centers globally. Jan Jump, an Indiana Amazon employee, along with her small team of fellow Amazon workers, has over the last month tallied COVID-19 cases at Amazon warehouses in the U.S. According to Jump, there have been at least 500 coronavirus cases in at least 125 Amazon facilities. Uh, Jump suspects that the number is much higher, but says this is what she and her team have been able to directly confirm through their sourcing which includes screenshots of internal company texts and voicemails to employees when cases have arisen, in addition to messages received from Amazon workers on private Facebook groups. The numbers, which have not been previously reported, are the most comprehensive to this point. Amazon declined to comment on the numbers of sick workers compiled by organizers. While we respect people's right to express themselves, we object to the irresponsible actions of labor groups in spreading misinformation and making false claims about Amazon during this unprecedented health and economic crisis, said Amazon spokesperson and corporate ghoul Rachel Lighty. She added, we have gone to extreme measures to understand and address this pandemic. The May 1st strike is the latest. Oh, no, that was it. That's the end of her quote. Okay, so you're just a hack that works for Jeff Bezos, Rachel. I I don't know anything about you, but to say that it's a false claim when it involves text messages and screenshots is is just absurd. I I don't know what your point is. Like that's... And for labor groups to be labeled as irresponsible. We're not irresponsible. Labor groups are the backbone of the working class. And just because propaganda has convinced a fair amount of the workforce that this is not so, the fact remains that labor advocacy and fighting for workers' rights is a marrow deep institution in this country. And as much as there has been a lot of backsliding over the last 60 years, We've like, this is a great example of what you can do. You know, when I talk about electoralism, not really convincing me at the moment, uh, this is a great way to organize, you know, to set up uh, intercommunity cooperation, frankly. Uh, when you go to your workplace of work, you know, I'm still working. I'm not working in the office. I'm working from home. But if you are on essential personnel and being forced in, speak with them about using this catastrophe, this pandemic, as the opportunity to really get some organization off the ground in your place of work. 
I, I think that a crisis is the perfect time. In fact, the only time to negotiate because it's when you have leverage. Because if you don't work, then things don't get done that are essential. You know, I mean, this this is the time to negotiate. Uh, so the May 1st strike is the latest in a wave of actions led by union and non-union frontline workers. Last month, Amazon workers in New York City and more than 10,000 Instacart workers across the country staged a walkout. Whole Foods employees led a national sick out on March 31st, while upwards of 800 workers skipped their shifts at a Colorado meatpacking plant as coronavirus cases were confirmed among employees. Sanitation workers in Pittsburgh and bus drivers in Detroit both staged wildcat strikes. These workers have been exploited so shamelessly for so long by these companies while performing incredibly important but largely invisible labor, said Stephen Breer, a labor historian and professor at CNY, the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. All of a sudden, they're deemed essential workers in a pandemic, giving them tremendous leverage and power if they organize collectively. Amen. The Workers' Co Coalition will unveil a set of demands. Among them are compensation for all unpaid time off, used since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis in March, hazard pay or paid sick leave to be provided for the duration of the pandemic, protective equipment and all cleaning supplies to be provided at all times by the company, and a demand for full corporate transparency on the number of cases and facilities. That is a very, I would, I'm not going to use the word tepid, but benign list of demands. You know, that is not trying to upset the apple cart of power. They're not trying to seize autonomy away from the ownership of the company, right? Like that is a very reasonable list of demands. So if these are not met, I mean, well, of course they're not going to be met. This is how it works. Any, any demand is too much. The workers chose May 1st, International Workers' Day, as a signal to workers everywhere that collectively they can take on corporate behemoths, said Christian Smalls, a lead organizer on the strike. Amazon fired Smalls on March 30, March 30th. Wow. Only hours after he led his colleagues at a company warehouse in Staten Island, New York, on a walkout in protest of Amazon's response to the pandemic. Amazon said Smalls was fired for violating a company enforced quarantine. Oh, fuck you. Fuck you, Amazon. God, that is the worst company on the planet. The firing galvanized frontline workers everywhere who sent dozens of messages daily to Smalls asking how they, too, could organize work stoppages to protest their workplace conditions. Smalls joined forces with workers' rights groups like Amazonians United, Target Workers Unite, Whole Worker, and the Gig Workers Collective, among others. The coalition organized the strike over the last several weeks on Zoom calls and encrypted message apps like Telegram and Signal. Civil rights icon Reverend Jesse Jackson joined in on one Zoom call to briefly address the organizers, offering the full support of his Rainbow Push network. I am with you in your struggle, struggle, Jackson told the call's participants. The Intercept spoke to 20 organizers from more than half a dozen states, reflecting the widespread nature of the strike. From Whole Foods workers in Boston to Instacart gig workers in Silicon Valley to Amazon warehouse organizers in Kentucky and Michigan, their stories and demands varied, but together illustrated a pattern of corporate neglect toward workers now regarded as essential. Alongside doctors, nurses, and EMT workers during the coronavirus outbreak that has forced much of the nation into home lockdown. All of these workers are coming together and building power, said Vanessa Bain, an Instacart worker and co-founder of the Gig Workers Collective. I follow them on Twitter. They're pretty cool. Which counts more than 17,000 members and advocates for gig workers' rights. May Day is not just a one-time symbolic action, but also about building real, vast, and broad-sweeping networks of power. 
Oh, that's exciting. That is exciting. I will be participating in this coming May Day. I don't know how, but I will be doing something on that day. So follow me on Twitter uh, to see what I'm doing for May Day. Obviously, I can't go out and that limits what you can do, but May Day is an important day. Uh, the company that has faced the most sustained the most sustained criticism throughout the outbreak has been Amazon. Gee, who would have thought? Whose CEO Jeff Bezos has personally become twenty four billion dollars richer during the pandemic. Last week, Amazon announced that it was ending its temporary policy of unlimited unpaid time off on April third. <laughs> Jesus. In response, on early Sunday morning, more than 50 Amazon workers in Minnesota walked out of a company warehouse in suburban Minneapolis to protest the move and decry their working conditions. In March, Amazon announced plans to hire 100,000 workers to meet surging demand and to cover for workers who had taken out the unpaid leave over fears of exposure to the virus at their workplace. This month, the company announced plans for an additional 75,000 hires. For its part, Instacart hired 300,000 new shoppers in March alone more than its entire existing workforce to that point, and last week announced that it would hire an additional 250,000 workers to meet the historic demand. Even if these people strike, these companies are still getting just absolute gangbusters because we're all at home now. We're all trapped at home. And of course, any kind of mechanism of delivering things, whether it's groceries or just supplies, is going to profit. During It, it really is. This is why you have the, the government. This is why government exists, is to prevent fucking merchants from just price gouging people during catastrophes. And these people happen to control the methods of delivery. And right now we all need home delivery. So, of course, they are getting gangbuster amounts of money. I mean, this is it, disgusting. It's despicable. Anyway, back to the article. The hiring binge by Amazon and Instacart exposed the winners and losers in the pandemic as businesses not deemed essential by the state fight mass layoffs, said Breer. Critics say the opportunities to, quote unquote, cash in on the pandemic have not come without risks. Pressured by workers' protests and elected officials, companies granted some concessions to workers. Amazon, Walmart, and Target increased our hourly pay by $2. Jesus Christ, you fucking misers. Hourly pay was increased by only two goddamn dollars? You fucking greedy misers. It's unbelievable. It's a pandemic. The kind that only comes around like every hundred years. Amazon now provides personal protective equipment at its facilities and more actively cleans workspaces while Target has mandated its workers to wear masks after weeks of reports that they were reprimanded for doing so. The Intercept reached out to all six companies targeted in Friday's strike. FedEx, Walmart, and Whole Foods did not offer comments. Instacart said that the company remained, quote, singularly focused on the health and safety of the Instacart community, end quote. That says literally nothing. That's a nothing statement. In a statement, Target said that it had taken many measures to ensure the safety of its employees and customers. Of the May Day strike, the company said, while we take them seriously, the concern raised are from a very small minority. The vast majority of our more than 340,000 frontline team members have expressed pride in the role they are playing in helping provide for families across the country during this time of need. Again, they have not said they don't take pride in their work. They're saying it's unsafe working conditions and that you are disgusting for misrepresenting that. You're disgusting, Target. You know, we can see what you're doing. Let me just put it that way. We can see what you're doing. A Staten Island worker who requested anonymity for fear of retaliation from Amazon 
has been on unpaid leave for more than a month. As someone with a number of underlying health conditions, the worker said contracting the virus would be a quote-unquote death sentence. They are surviving off meager savings and have to move into a friend's home because they could no longer pay rent. They need to close down the warehouses and do a thorough, deep cleaning for it to be safe, the worker told The Intercept. If someone dies, they have blood on their hands. An Amazon worker in Detroit who plans to call out sick on Friday described a warehouse where for weeks there was no enforced social distancing and no gloves, masks, and hand sanitizers provided to workers, even as the city became a national coronavirus hotspot. Multiple colleagues confirmed the worker's claim to The Intercept. You either come to work or take an unpaid leave of absence, said the worker who has a serious underlying health condition. If I miss one paycheck, it would mean I lose my vehicle, I lose my place to live, I lose everything. A Whole Foods worker in Southern California spent weeks organizing colleagues to strike on May 1st as the number of coronavirus cases have increased at stores. The workers said that managers, even though sympathetic to their demands, are helpless against the Amazon subsidiary's corporate office. The strike, like the sick out last month, is the only way that employees can get concessions from the company, said the, said the worker. Nothing happens unless they see their bottom line affected. Whole Worker, the group that advocates for Whole Foods workers' rights, has compiled its own list of positive coronavirus cases at Whole Foods stores in a document shared with The Intercept. According to the group, there have been a total of 249 cases in at least 131 stores. So, I mean, you can do the math there. That's more than one for one per store. And that's already enough to infect the entire building. It's one of the most infectious diseases, like, out right now. Comparatively speaking to the cold or the flu, it's like, it double the infection rate. I'm not going to explain it because it, I would sound stupid because I'd probably misexplain it, but I did see a program on it. Uh Adam Ryan, a Target worker in Southern Virginia and liaison with Target, Workers Unite, said the May 1st strike is the first collective action by Target employees in the company's nearly 60-year history. Ryan said, it's up, to, it's up to us to fight for ourselves. Good for you guys. Southern Virginia, man, we have become a hotbed of workers' rights, and I'm so damn proud to see that. You know, Lee Carter is obviously our most famous local socialist. And he was at that rally when I went to go see Bernie several weeks ago. And man, what a powerful dude. Like just really, you, you believe him when he talks like Lee Carter, like he has passion in his voice. You know, he's like, I know we're tired, but we got to get up and we got to fight even harder. Like talking with these like hard union members that have been fighting for just like a little bit of pay. Like it, it. anyway, back to the article. I don't know. Oh, wait. Nope. That's the end of the article. Ha. Look at that. We got to the end of it. It's up to us to fight for ourselves. True facts. So that's what's happening with Amazon right now. And I think that's a pretty exciting turn of events. And that's kind of what inspired me, frankly, to record today was that at least there was something pushing back against the corporate powerhouse. You know, uh, there at least there was some progress made towards a progressive value you know even if it isn't being done electorally if it's being done at all that's a great thing and that's worth sharing with people uh, so i'm very proud of all these workers that are striking i'm proud of the organizers that have come together to make this a reality uh, i'm proud of the people that lost their jobs as a result of even speaking up about the horrendous conditions that they've been subjugated to i, I i'm proud of all of you you all are, are doing God's work out there, like really fighting for rights. Like this is how you affect change in this country. Uh, moving on to the article that I mentioned at the beginning of the segment. 
So this is going to be the last article. It's an article-heavy episode, I guess. Uh, but, you know, these were topical news stories. Uh, this is going to be the last article, the one I saw earlier tonight uh, from Fox News. Uh, so John Cusack has called on Bernie Sanders to reopen his campaign for president after the state of New York canceled its primary election due to concerns over the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the New York State Board of Elections announced it was canceling the June 23rd election completely, prompting an immediate backlash from Cusack and other Sanders supporters. Although the Vermont senator had suspended his campaign and threw his endorsement behind Joe Biden, he wanted to stay on the ballot. Cusick took to Twitter shortly after the announcement to warn his followers that New York's decision now sets a precedent for Donald Trump to cancel the general election in November, where he is expected to go head-to-head against Biden. He also called for Sanders to unsuspend his campaign and rescind his endorsement. Uh, Quote, New York State canceled the presidential primaries, thus declaring Electoral College inconvenient to their political ambitions, a disastrous mistake by the DNC for allowing it to happen. If the Dems intend to behave like Trump, Sanders should unsuspend his campaign immediately. Amen, brother. I mean, come on. You know, give me someone to vote for, please. Anyone to vote for. Uh, is it? He followed later in the day by tweeting to the women's march co-chair, Linda Sassor, writing, Bernie should be should unendorse and reopen his campaign. New York Board of Elections just set a precedent for Trump by actually canceling election. Bernie deserved to stay on the ballot to amass delegates. DNC was cool. Biden was fine with it. They acted unilaterally and unstrategically. Uh, in subsequent tweets throughout May- Monday, Cusack further called on Sanders to reopen his campaign and noted that Democrats in New York are painting a false narrative about the safety of voting amid the pandemic when mail-in voting is also an option. The actor echoed sentiments made by the Sanders campaign in its response to New York's decision to cancel its primary election. Today's decision by the state of New York Board of Election is an outrage, a blow to American democracy, and must be overturned by the DNC, wrote Sanders senior advisor Jeff Weaver in a statement. Just last week, Vice President Biden warned the American people that President Trump could use the current crisis as an excuse to postpone the November election. Well, he now has a precedent thanks to New York State. The statement adds, no one asked New York to cancel the election. The DNC didn't request it. The Biden campaign didn't request it. And our campaign communicated that we wanted to remain on the ballot. Given that the primary is months away, the proper response must be to make the election safe, such as going to all vote by mail, rather than eliminating eliminating people's right to vote completely. And that is, you know, it's brief, short and sweet, but I like it. That's, that's the kind of sentiments I like to see. You know, the more... The more Biden tanks and the more clear it becomes to other, like, again, him going out and doing uh, events with Hillary Clinton, for instance, I think proves that he's the kind of person who's going to lose to Donald Trump when push comes to shove. And it's a risk. So the more we get the message out there that there is another option, if Bernie unsuspends his campaign, for instance, even if it's a vain hope at this point, the fact of the matter is, is that at least we can go down fighting. Like I didn't want him to suspend the campaign at the time. I viewed it as essential that we continue. I would love it if it would resurface. I'm still disappointed. And I still think that at this point you're just fighting for delegates, but that fight matters. Every fight matters. Like we need to have some real negotiations with the DNC. Otherwise it's all for nothing. If you just fold, if you just say I'm giving up, then it's all for nothing. All this energy we spent, all the calls we did, all the money we contributed, ultimately amasses no change in the democratic institutions. If a guy like Biden can get the nom without giving any concessions to us, 
without allowing us even like a BP slot, any kind of proposals or policies that he's going to get behind, any changes of the internal mechanics of the Democratic Party. Like these are all things that Bernie negotiated for last time. And part of the reason why he, even though he has suspended his campaign, was not happy that New York ended the primary because he did want to amass those delegates. It is useful to be able to negotiate with these cretins, with these corporate ghouls. Uh, and the only way you can do that is if you win their game in a way that they can't cheat it. And no matter how much they have, well, they have cheated, but no matter how much they have cheated, they haven't been able to completely erase the mechanic of delegate amass. You know, they that is something that exists and they cannot refute it. They have to at least concede that's a rule. Like for them to just ignore it, like basically means there are no rules in the Democratic Party when they choose, you know, and maybe that is where they'll, they'd eventually go with it. But the point is last time they didn't. All of this is to say last time they did not, when Hillary Clinton and Bernie ran against each other, they did give concessions to us. We got the Unity Reform Commission out of that. And I did say that I thought that was a useful tool at the time. Uh, I think seeing now uh, Senator Sanders suspend his campaign and seeing what became of our movement you know, if nothing comes of it, then the Unity Reform Commission really, what was it, you know? But it did scare a lot of folks in D.C. for a minute that Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee and there was nothing they could do about it. And at the time, I spoke very highly of that move. Now, again, the time has come for another negotiation, assuming Senator Sanders does not unsuspend his campaign and then do some sort of historic rocket to first uh, to save himself and the country. Assuming that doesn't happen and he just amassed a certain amount of delegates, the time has come to negotiate. And that is my big advice to the Democratic progressive left is that as much as we're discouraged, if you can vote by mail, vote by mail and vote for Bernie, you know, in, in your states. It's, you know, past time for me. I'm in Virginia, so I'm not going to be voting. But for those of you that, that still can, Bernie will be on the ballot. Please vote for him. Uh, the more delegates he amasses, the stronger negotiating position we will be in. Uh, going in uh, to the Democratic convention, assuming there even is one. Uh, I think that it's important to try to, you know, make lemonade with these lemons. And I think that's the best way to do it. Uh, I think that if John Cusack's cry has been heard by Senator Sanders, I hope he will unsuspend his campaign to force New York to put him back on the ballot. But we will see. Uh, at this time, I'm going to go ahead and log off. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Sociable Socialism. Have a good night.